from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Any little bit would help me reach my goal of being able to bring you more content with more visuals and perhaps interviews and so on. So keep that in mind. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the serial killer nurse, Lucy Letby. This woman has been requested quite a lot, and I wanted to give the case time to kind of simmer down a bit so that I could go through my research process without all of the over-sensationalized media coverage leaving a glaze over the informational facts of this case. I think we are there now, so let's get into it. First off, this goes without saying, this will be about infant death, many infants. It's greatly upsetting to me, and I'm pretty used to reading, listening to, watching the worst of the worst. If you think this will be too much for you, you skip this one. It's all good. Lucy was born on January 4th, 1990 in Hereford, England, which is very near the eastern border of Wales in the southern middle part of England. And since she wasn't born in the 40s during World War II, let's get into some history for the year of her birth as we know what's going on in the world and the stress or exposure to any little thing can affect the fetus or a pregnancy. So North and South Yemen, also known as the Yemen Arab Republic and the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, were finally unified as the Republic of Yemen in 1990. North Yemen had been a part of the Ottoman Empire prior to its independence in 1918, after the Ottoman collapse. South Yemen had been a part of the British Empire until 1967, when it became an independent socialist republic. In 1990, the two nations decided to merge under the leadership of Ali Salem al-Bait from South Yemen and Ali Abdullah Saleh from North Yemen, after the announcement, the new nation was to go through a 30-month transitional period. 
So Iran was hit with a 7.4 magnitude earthquake during the summer of 1990 near the Caspian Sea, northwest of Tehran. The earthquake affected an area of about 20,000 square miles, destroying thousands of homes. An estimated 400,000 people were left homeless after the disaster. The death toll was estimated between 35 and 50,000 people, and up to 135,000 people that were injured. Also, Tim Berners-Lee published his formal proposal for the World Wide Web this year. The proposal outlined a plan for a system that would use hypertext, web pages, browsers, and web servers to share documents across the internet. Berners-Lee had first proposed his idea to colleagues at CERN, the CERN in Switzerland, who then worked with him to develop the system for about two years before it became functional. His original goal was to make the sharing of documents easy and universal for scientists and educational purposes around the globe, but had acknowledged the potential for commercial involvement. The creation of the World Wide Web has since formed the standard for how we access and use the internet. Also this year, NASA deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. The mission launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The sophisticated space telescope was carried on the space shuttle Discovery and deployed by the five-person crew, who also filmed the process using IMAX cameras. The Hubble telescope was the first space telescope put into orbit that could be repaired by astronauts when maintenance was needed. The mission lasted five days and successfully returned to Earth, landing at the Edwards Air Force Base in California. One of the largest and most well-preserved Tyrannosaurus rex fossilized skeletons was found by paleontologist Sue Hendrickson near Faith, South Dakota, in August of 1990. The skeleton was named Sue after the person who discovered it. Sue, the dinosaur, was over 90% complete and measured about 13 feet tall and 40 feet long. The official demolition of the Berlin Wall began in June of 1990. The wall had been built in 1961 by the communist-run East Germany to prevent defectors from traveling over the border to capitalist-run West Germany. Control of the Berlin Wall ended in November of 1989 when it was announced that East German citizens would be allowed to cross the border with complete freedom. The removal of the wall began in June of 1990, and by October, the reunification of West and East Germany was completed. Demolition on the wall was finished in 1992. Some other people, notable people, that were born in 1990 are Emma Watson, Jennifer Lawrence, Kristen Stewart, Soldier Boy, Iggy Azalea, and Liam Helmsworth. So this was the world and the atmosphere that Lucy was born into. Lucy was the only child born to John and Susan Letby. Now, her parents have a bit of an age gap, a May-December romance, if you will. John was born in 1946, making him 44 years old when Lucy was born. Her mother was born around 1960, making her 29 when she gave birth to Lucy. 
so John is considerably older than Susan. Sources stated that John was the boss of a furniture store or some kind of manager. Um, other sources stated that he was an accountant or in bookkeeping, but either way, John worked a perfectly respectable job and he worked hard. Susan also worked in accounting and bookkeeping in the same company as it was said that that's how they met and together they made a comfortable life for each other and their only daughter. Susan gave birth to Lucy six months after she and John were married, and sources also said that Susan had a difficult pregnancy and a difficult birth experience and that Lucy had been, quote, poorly or had been ill just after birth. Though I couldn't find a reputable source to plainly state it, I very much got the impression that Lucy had been premature but had pulled through, much to the great relief of her parents. She was a healthy, bright-eyed, blonde-haired, happy baby and young child. By all accounts, and I mean all of them, Lucy had an idyllic childhood. Susan and John lived in a semi-detached house, which is super common. It was built in the 1930s on the end of a cul-de-sac, which, for my international listeners, is a neighborhood street that is a dead end. So there's very, very little traffic other than the neighbors. It's generally regarded as a safe place for children to play outside and so on because of the lack of traffic. And the neighbors were very quick to report that Susan and John absolutely doted on little Lucy. She was the apple of her parents' eye. She was actually described as being quite pampered by her parents. She was spoiled every year. It was said two and sometimes three times a year. Her parents took her on a nice vacation. She was always dressed nicely, displayed a warm smile, and was very well liked by her childhood peers. Her parents, but namely her mother, recanted the story of her precious daughter being born and having to fight for her own life, how very brave baby Lucy had been. She fought and fought and survived, and Lucy grew up listening to this story over and over and over. It was said that her father would even go in and make her bed for her on occasions. Both parents waited on their daughter hand and foot. She wanted for nothing. They absolutely worshipped their little girl. Once she was old enough to begin school, sources said that she attended Aylstone School. From their website, they say their vision is, quote, a happy, safe community that, through the values of the Federation, inspires children to create a better world, achieving excellence together with the confidence to make their own valuable contribution to their communities, end quote. They advertise that their ethos expectations are, quote, children to leave for the next stage of their education with the confidence and aptitude to make their own valuable contribution to their community. Also, for staff to recognize and enhance their own contribution to this development of children, supporting positive well-being for all. Parents and carers also to be able to support their child's education. Right? Okay. So in the age of reviews. I looked up some reviews for this school and they weren't exactly positive. There was a recent school inspection that was rated, quote, requires improvement. And really, they scored that requires improvement quite a few times. 
Other inspections were rated satisfactory, and a couple of just good scores in the early 2000s. I saw some parental complaints that they had to remove their child out of the school because the child was being bullied and nothing was being done. Gotta love that about schools. Another stated that the teachers were okay, all caps, but that they were quite surprised some of the teachers still had jobs. Here is actually, because I had to share this, a direct quote from a review of this school. Quote, poor staff behavior. Had to remove my daughter in year nine for persistent harassment and bullying by the teachers. One out of ten, very bad. Would not recommend as a school choice. My daughter's best friend and others from her year also are having to be removed due to such poor staff behavior. Never even bothered to try to help with the situation. Instead, they just result in sanction and consequence. Issues like sexual harassment by students took place on the campus for three years before the teachers bothered to do something about this. My daughter did not feel safe on the campus, and the teachers knew this as we told them, yet still did nothing. COVID rules are not followed by the teachers whatsoever. My daughter and many others in her year suffer with anger issues, and the teachers do nothing to help. End quote. And there were a lot of reviews that were just as angry and scathing as that one. So, yikes. And the sort of grades given to this school for academics, resources, safety, and so on were all C's and lower. But, you know, Lucy was said to have thrived in this school. According to the Daily Mail, Lucy was part of the geeky crowd, a very quiet, closed group. Adding that her peers could never have imagined anybody from their school could commit such crimes. There was, however, just an element of weirdness about her, a lot of them admitted. They spoke about during the school years, even if another student wasn't part of a group's friend circle, everyone still at least spoke to everyone else, and yet a number of them stated they didn't remember ever having an actual conversation with Lucy in her youth. But the consensus was that she was typical, but quite obviously sheltered, and the descriptive word vanilla was used to give you some context. She also attended church on Sundays. Close friends described her as shy, level-headed, quiet, serious, and reserved. But inside the small group of very trusted friends, she would let her hair down, as they say, relax, and was quite goofy. They said that, as far back as they could remember, Lucy had always said she wanted to go into nursing when she grew up. No doubt impressed upon by the stories of her own brush with death as an infant and the medical staff that had saved her precious life. But the consensus was that Lucy, to her very close, intimate circle of friends, was a loving, loyal, and charitable person who only ever really wanted to help people. Not one of her friends thought she would be capable of causing harm to anyone or anything on any level. And her parents, again, absolutely showered her with love and attention. She wasn't abused or neglected on any level whatsoever that I could find. If she misbehaved, her parents would be terribly disappointed and would try to use shame or guilt to get her to behave, but they never beat her or anything untoward at all. Her parents were very overly protective of her and sheltered her more than what is thought to be typical. 
So I found no information with regards to her social life while she was a teenager, but the source material said that she didn't really go out much except for church. She stayed home and she studied. There wasn't any mention of any specific boyfriends or sneaking out, no drugs, no drink, absolutely nothing. There was a sort of consensus that her parents put a lot of pressure on her to be a, quote, good girl. And that was Lucy's childhood, guys. As international as this story went, I was a little surprised at the lack of specific childhood information about Lucy. But I also hear that other countries don't really release as much information as the United States do, so possibly that could be why. But regardless, with what we have, let's dive right in. In the time that I give myself to research, I couldn't really find out if her father John had been married previously before he married Susan. Again, Lucy was born when her parents were 44 and 29, respectively. I couldn't really find any information on the background of her parents at all prior to their marriage to each other. Now, from neighbor interviews and sources and all of that, one gets the impression that they were kind of introverted. They kept to themselves. There were no stories of family friends or the parents going on outings outside of their vacations near Devon, England in the Southwest. So John and Susan got married, and six months later, as we know, Lucy was born. No sources specifically stated that Susan had gotten pregnant before they were married or if Lucy had been born premature. But what we do know is that Lucy was born and her birth was very hard on her. She had nearly died, but thankfully, the nurses at the hospital had worked tirelessly and she had miraculously survived. And as I was sitting and kind of thinking and pondering on this, it brought to my mind a condition called birth asphyxia, which is the newborn experiencing a lack of oxygen and blood flow to the brain. According to seattleschildren.org, quote, birth asphyxia happens when a baby's brain and other organs do not get enough oxygen and nutrients before, during, or right after birth. This can happen without anyone knowing. Without oxygen and nutrients, cells cannot work properly. Waste products like acids build up in the cells and cause damage. End quote. Now, folks, I can already hear you. I'm not saying that Lucy suffered any effects from birth asphyxia. I was merely exploring any possible negative outcomes from her traumatic birth experience. But it certainly isn't a stretch for her to suffer some unseen damage from that near-death experience. And since she was most certainly her mother's only child, and most likely her father's only child, and them coming so close to losing her, it isn't hard to imagine the anxiety they would have developed around her and her new life. But make no mistake, guys, they spoiled and smothered her. That was quite apparent, though I'm certain that their intentions had been completely pure. According to the Psychological Healing Center, Smothering a child can stunt psychological growth and create anxiety, depression, and a lack of self-confidence. It's an issue of boundaries. If you're too controlling with your children, they never have the opportunity to explore their own wants and needs and are forced to cater to your overly strict boundaries. Parents often smother their children because they are worried and nervous for their well-being. Parents project their own fears and insecurities on their children, creating a very confining life for them through overprotection. 
Many grown children who complain of parents who smother feel guilty and resentful and have a hard time making their own life's decisions. Many actually question their own mind. This micromanaging of their children's school major, beliefs, choice of mate, and even choice of career can create a family rift over generations. Although it is a parent's job to direct their children in the best way they can, sometimes they can go overboard and do more damage than good. According to Dr. Maslow, a child cannot separate and individuate if he or she is tied to the parents. I refer to this as a toxic tie because it doesn't allow the child to separate and become a strong, fully formed adult. Now, because many parents, unfortunately, are more interested in their own agenda than the best interest of their children, the children are forced to choose between their own mental health and their parents' needs and agendas. It takes a lot of strength to break free of this toxic system, particularly because spoiling or smothering weakens the child. Once weakened, the controlling can take better hold. A weak child is a dependent child and a future dependent adult. Some children grow up to be toxically tied to their parents even in adulthood and fail to launch into healthy adulthood. And then again, maybe perhaps her parents sensed something lacking in their own daughter and did their best to try to shield her and protect her from what she would go on to do. I digress. Reactions to smothering or controlling range from succumbing to the parent's control and submitting to their needs or acting out and rebelling against this oppression. The rebellion can take the form of acting out, using and abusing drugs, becoming sexually promiscuous, or any other forms of rebellion that they know will generate anger in their parents, or acting in, becoming depressed and suicidal in extreme cases or perhaps in Lucy's case, an urge to kill. That covers the smothering, right? So now what about excessive spoiling? Well, according to an article written for Medicine Net, quote, it's natural to want your children to be happy, but giving them everything they ask for can cause long-term problems. Pampering your child leaves an impression of entitlement. Overprotective parents often spoil their children. Children who grow up under a lot of restrictions may develop an unhealthy attitude towards people in authority and rules and can end up acting out more than their peers. By solving all of a child's problems, parents can keep them from learning how to deal with the consequences of their actions. Without this skill, your children may not learn how to take responsibility and plan their actions appropriately. Spoiled children often think more of themselves than other people. They may expect people to offer them favors or special treatment. You may notice a spoiled child blaming others for their failures while expecting praise for everything they do. The long-term effects of overly spoiling children include increased dependency and being especially needy. There is evidence of increased irresponsibility and they learn to manipulate others so that they get what they want. There is also increased defiance and disrespect. There is a self-centeredness and immature behavior. And while those traits aren't immediately obvious when it comes to Lucy, I invite you to just take a look at the photos that the authorities took of her bedroom when she was arrested and you will see that immaturity. 
quite plainly. The takeaway is that constant coddling and pampering can be harmful in the long run. Parenting styles that shield children from challenging experiences reduce their opportunities to build resilience. Spoiled kids grow up to be overindulgent, selfish, unhappy, and constantly dissatisfied adults. I want to make it perfectly clear that I'm not blaming Susan or John for Lucy's later actions. I truly believe that she was their miracle baby, so to speak, and they loved her so much that they did her a great disservice in trying to make sure she knew that she was adored and lucky and on and on. So let's get back to the story. Lucy Letby went on to attend Hereford's sixth Form College, which is a co-educational state-funded college. A six-form college is an educational institution where students aged 16 to 19 study typically for advanced post-school level qualifications. How they run the educational system in the UK is a little bit different than how we run it here, so that's why I looked that up, just for general knowledge. But while doing this post-school level qualifications, it was said that she got her first part-time job working for W.H. Smith, which again, I had to look up, and it is described as a leading global retailer in news, books, and convenience with more than 1,700 stores in over 30 countries. It kind of makes me wonder if it's like a Barnes & Noble or something, something like that. So you guys in the UK, you let me know. But once she was done at Hereford's sixth form, she made the decision to enroll at the University of Chester to get her nursing degree. While she was in nursing school, she worked as a student nurse while studying for three years. She then became the first member of her family to graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Child Nursing from the University of Chester in 2011. And her parents were so excited, they were so proud, that they took out an ad in the local paper that read, quote, We are so proud of you after all of your hard work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2011, she was hired on full-time at the Countess of Chester Hospital's neonatal unit. In a 2013 hospital staff profile, she stated that she was responsible for caring for a wide range of babies requiring various levels of support, and that she enjoyed seeing them progress and supporting their families. Lucy also took part in a campaign to raise money for a new neonatal unit at the hospital. But a big point to make for this part of the story is that sources stated her parents were very upset that Lucy didn't want to immediately move back home to Hereford. For reference, the hospital she worked at was a bit over two hours north from her parents. And from what I understand and from what I've heard from um, British TikTokers and whatnot, that they think that that's super far. Over two hour drive, nearly unacceptable. 
Whereas for me, two hour drive is still not getting me to like one of the two biggest cities in my state. So that's just to give you a bit of geographical reference. So though she was what her parents considered to be quite far away from home, they did help her buy a semi-detached three-bedroom house that was only one mile from the hospital where she worked. Lucy lived there alone with her two rescued cats, Tigger and Smudge. And again, both John and Susan were quite saddened that she didn't want to live with or write by them, and Lucy admitted to friends that she felt pretty guilty for upsetting her parents. This was actually a subject that she brought up several times. She carried the weight of the disappointment from her parents about it. They told her that living alone and her being so far away from home was hard on them, and they reminded her that they were, quote, massively worried. That certainly is a lot of guilt and pressure to put on a young adult who very much needed to spread her wings, metaphorically speaking. Lucy actually messaged a friend stating, quote, My parents worry massively about everything and anything, hate that I live alone, etc. I feel bad because I know it's really hard for them, especially as I'm an only child, and they mean well, just a little suffocating at times and constantly feel guilty, end quote. But she did continue to go on vacations with her parents, and she visited them, and they her, regularly. At some point, an associate asked her to move with them to New Zealand for a great career opportunity, and while she considered it, she told the associate, quote, I couldn't leave my parents. They would be completely devastated. Find it hard enough being away from me now, and it's only a hundred miles. I came here to uni and didn't go back. They hate it, and I feel guilty for staying here sometimes, but it's what I want. End quote. At this point, Lucy was now 22 years old. She was working her dream job with infants, and she was also getting supplemental training, as well as helping out at Liverpool's Women's Hospital. In her personal time, she loved going out with friends, and really, as I was researching her, I found quite a lot of pictures of her with an alcoholic beverage in her hand, as in a seemingly inordinate amount of pictures of her out drinking and dancing with friends. And while I'm not judging her for doing that whatsoever, it might also add a layer of depth to her overall picture. But more on that later. What I also found interesting were photos of her bedroom in her home, as I already stated. And while you can't necessarily judge a person by how they keep their house or how they choose to decorate their living spaces, I believe how she chose to accessorize her bedroom is a little telling. In her mid-twenties at this point, the first impression one gets is a bedroom for a tween or very young teenager. Children's teddy bears on the bed indicating that she still sleeps with them. Barbie doll pink accessories that seem rather childlike, very generic quotes on the wall stating, you know, something about sparkle wherever you go, with glitter lettering, and the room was a bit unkempt, though I'm not really judging that either. I think one could give her some allowance for the long shifts that we know she worked and not having the energy to clean her room. I think we can at least give her that. But she had finally built an independent life for herself. She was far enough away from her parents that she felt she could let her hair down. 
She wrote little sort of notes to herself about how she felt she didn't actually deserve her parents, how she wasn't good enough, that she was an awful person, and that she felt there was no hope for her finding a husband or having any children. She was very upset that she felt she would never know what it was like to have a family of her own. Was she just imposing this incredible pressure on herself? Or was this something from perhaps her mother Susan or possibly her very rapidly aging father John? I'm not saying it did. This is just speculation. So in June 2015, as Lucy was working night shifts with newborns, twins had been born later in the evening. Lucy was assigned one of the healthy babies, the boy, to care for by the resident on duty who was leaving after their shift. Precisely 26 minutes later, Lucy called for a doctor, stating the baby was in rapidly failing health. The baby unfortunately died 30 minutes later. A fellow nurse said that when the infant boy started not thriving, if you will, she said that she observed Lucy standing over the infant's incubator so she didn't intervene. She assumed Lucy had it under control. However, the nurse began to realize the baby was not recovering. Doctors were brought in to assess the situation, and they said that child A, the baby boy, developed a highly unusual blue and white spotting on his skin after his vitals crashed, which they said they had never observed before. To save time and suspense, this symptom correlates to the baby having been intentionally injected with air. This is referred to as an air embolism. Large air embolisms can cause strokes or heart attacks and can be fatal. Prompt medical treatment for an embolism is essential. Medical News Today described the symptoms as pain in the joints or muscles, irregular heart rhythm, blurry vision, anxiety, itchy skin, seizures, low blood pressure, dizziness, chest pain, vertigo, blood frothing from the mouth, paralysis, and much more, including death. It would have been quite painful, and especially so, to a brand new baby. The next day after child A's death, it was later discovered that Lucy had searched for his parents on Facebook. A day later, his twin sister also collapsed and nearly died. She had to be resuscitated. Lucy had just fed the infant girl about a half hour before her health took a nosedive. The baby's parents had been spending a lot of time with their remaining infant, feeling overwhelmed still at the loss of their baby boy. Tests would later show loops of gas in the newborn's bowels, and as a result, it was later concluded that the baby had in fact been injected with air. So the other medical staff were so confused and upset as to how this could have happened. Both babies had been born healthy with no health issues whatsoever outside of being premature. And then a few days later, child C, a newborn baby boy born seven weeks premature, died. His nurse had left the room momentarily, the baby perfectly healthy and stable, and Lucy had entered, though she was not assigned to this patient. She was seen standing over his monitor when it began going off, calling for his actual assigned nurse to immediately return. As the baby died, 
It was said that Lucy had to be removed repeatedly from the family room area. She desperately seemed to want to be there to witness the parents' grief. The baby's cause of death was air being injected into his tiny stomach, not his veins. She pumped his itty-bitty tummy full of air. Again, an absolutely excruciating way to die. A week later, child D, a newborn baby girl, began to fall ill or collapse, as they refer to it in the UK. Three times in her first few hours of life outside of the womb, to be exact. The third time proved fatal. Doctors observed the same strange discoloration and rash on the baby's skin as the others. It was later determined that the newborn baby girl had been IV injected with air. A post-mortem x-ray showed a striking line of gas in front of the spine, consistent with air being injected into the bloodstream. That was a quote, end quote. A doctor said there was little to no chance that it was from natural causes. The mother of baby girl D said that Lucy was most definitely hovering around the family just before all of this happened. In July 2015, Around a week after baby girl D died, Dr. Stephen Breary, the head consultant on the neonatal unit, carried out the standard review of the three rather unusual deaths the month before. He submitted his report to Allison Kelly, the director of nursing and deputy chief executive, and informed her that Lucy had been the only nurse on shift for each of the deaths, and yet she was left working on the neonatal unit. But thankfully, those most disturbing deaths seem to stop. That is, at least until early August 2015, when twin boys, childs E and F, were born seven weeks premature and only weighing around three pounds each. It was the night shift, and Lucy was working. The mother of the twins was on her way to the neonatal unit to hand over her pumped breast milk for her brand new baby boys, when she heard a blood-curdling scream coming from their room. She rushed in just in time to witness blood lining around her baby's mouth, and the baby was in obvious extreme pain. And it's important to remember that premature babies very rarely are even able to scream like this. So just keep that in mind. The mother stated that she saw Lucy watching her clearly distressed baby and was not doing anything to help ease his pain, just observing. But, you know, Lucy reassured the mother, telling her that the bleeding was a result of a rubbing feeding tube and told the mother to calm down. She told a brand new mother of twin premature babies, one of which was clearly in crisis, to calm down. The boy died in the early hours of the next morning after having lost about a quarter of his blood. It is believed she too filled his tiny tummy with a lot of air, but unfortunately, no post-mortem was performed. And then the next night, the other twin boy, child F, suffered an unexpected drop in his blood sugar, as well as a surge in his heart rate. Thankfully, the infant survived, and blood tests revealed that he had been given a large dose of insulin, even though there had been no such order given for the baby to receive it. 
After this incident, it was discovered that Lucy had also kind of social media stalked the parents of these twins for weeks and even months after this. Now, our wonderful Dr. Stephen Breary, who had initially raised the alarm, stated again that he was not comfortable with Lucy working in the NICU unit, but his concerns were utterly dismissed. And again, things went quiet for about a month until September. Newborn baby girl, child G, was born 15 weeks too early and weighed barely even one pound. When the baby was about to make it to her 100th day of being born and surviving, Lucy excitedly helped make a banner to celebrate this most incredible milestone. But then, in the very early hours of the baby's 101st day of survival, she began to vomit and was clearly very, very sick. The parents were beside themselves, obviously, as their baby was taken into intensive care after being perfectly healthy and well just the day before. As it would later be determined, Lucy had filled her tiny tummy up with milk and also injected air into her little tummy as well. After baby G was stabilized in the following weeks, Lucy attempted to murder baby G two more times, but thankfully the baby did survive. However, child G, who was given just a 5% chance of survival at the time of her birth, is now eight years old and has cerebral palsy and is visually impaired. Text messages sent through her murderous spree showed that Lucy sought sympathy and admiration from colleagues after these deaths. For some reason, the source material does not speak about a child H. There are some letters skipped. Instead, they moved on to child I, whose troubles began in October 2015. After four, four, four attempts, Lucy finally and successfully murdered yet another infant girl. This one had also had her poor, tiny tummy pumped full of air. The baby was screaming in horrid pain as Lucy was observed standing there next to the preemie's incubator. Another nurse, who was child I's designated nurse, the letter I, later stated that the infant was crying in a way the healthcare professional, quote, had never heard before a loud, relentless, almost constant, with no fluctuation, crying, end quote. It just turns my stomach, guys. This one's a hard one. So as the completely devastated new mother bathed her now deceased infant daughter, she said that Lucy entered the room and smiled, speaking about how she had had the opportunity to bathe the baby once before it died. Later, it was said that Lucy sent a sympathy card to the baby girl's parents on the day of the baby's funeral, a card which Lucy took photos of and kept on her phone, and she also looked up these parents on social media, namely Facebook. Finally, our hero, Dr. Breary, became increasingly concerned following the death of Child I. Another staffing review was conducted and found that, again, Lucy was present at more unusual deaths. Another consultant, Dr. Ravi, alerted management to their concerns, but was told, quote, not to make a fuss. And so, unfortunately, Lucy was left still working the NICU floor. 
Now let's take a moment, guys, to appreciate Dr. Breary for trying for months to get Lucy removed. He did his best. And then on Christmas Day, Lucy was on Facebook looking up parents yet again. In April 2016, even though it seems Lucy was taking a break from murdering innocent, premature, and helpless infants, she decided she had waited long enough. Twin baby boys had been born, childs L and M, pretty healthy and stable. And Lucy had been moved to the day shift because of the undercurrent of concerns regarding the convenient timing of her working and these babies dying. And then, both boys' health began to crash, and it was determined that they had very high levels of insulin in their blood. It was quite apparent that someone had attempted to poison them. The twins survived, but it was said that baby boy M suffered brain damage from this. The next month, May 2016, a rather hush-hush meeting was called to discuss Lucy and whether or not they believed she was connected to the deaths of the babies. Our beloved Dr. Breary met with the higher-ups to raise concerns about Lucy after an assurance, quote-unquote, document, proceeded to set out why Lucy was not believed to be the cause of these unusual deaths. It was suggested that other NHS services may be to blame for the spike in deaths and that, quote, there is no evidence whatsoever against Lucy other than coincidence, end quote. But Dr. Breary felt that yet again his very valid concerns had been dismissed, and hey, I'd be pissed too. Then nearly on the anniversary of her first known infant murder, in June 2016, she attempted to kill newborn baby boy child N. He was born with hemophilia, which is usually an inherited bleeding disorder in which the blood does not clot properly. This can lead to spontaneous bleeding as well as bleeding following injuries or surgery. She tried to kill him by making him bleed out internally by shoving his nasogastric tube violently further down into his throat, causing injury. She also tried to inject him with air. But once her shift was over, well, he just made this miraculous recovery, don't you know? And after this murder attempt, she went on a vacation to the Spanish island of Ibiza with some girlfriends. After she got back from her vacation, she went back to work after triplet babies had been born. The day after she returned, the first of the triplets, baby boy O, died from Lucy injecting air into his feeding tube. The next day, she murdered baby boy P by injecting him with air as well, which had nearly destroyed his diaphragm. And as they prepared him to be transferred to another hospital, Lucy was actually heard saying, quote, He's not leaving here alive, is he? End quote. The boy soon died. A consultant allowed the surviving triplet, which was a girl, to be taken to a different hospital by medics after the parents begged for it, as she now felt Lucy was in mortal danger to the surviving triplet. The consultant felt that the baby was in mortal danger. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So by now, Dr. Breary had had enough. All hail Dr. Breary. If you hear this, good on you, boy. He called the duty executive on the evening of Friday, June 24, 2016, to say Lucy must be removed from the unit. The duty executive insisted that Lucy was safe to work and was happy to take responsibility if anything happened to other babies when Lucy was involved. But thankfully, and I don't know who did it, but she was removed from the NICU unit and was assigned a clerical job in the hospital. And as if it were by some miracle, well, the strange infant deaths just suddenly stopped. And it was this very sudden drop, that the ending of the weird infant deaths, that made detectives from the Cheshire Police Department launch an investigation into those infant deaths at the hospital in May 2017, initially looking at the deaths of 15 babies, between June 2015 and June 2016. According to the Hereford Times, quote, On July 3, 2018, police said the probe had widened to include 17 deaths and 15 non-fatal collapses of babies between March 2015 and July 2016. End quote. The next year, in July 2018, Lucy was arrested. She had just returned from her typical vacation with her parents, to which her father had actually driven her home and had stayed the night with her, like she's an incapable child or something. After they handcuffed her and escorted her out of her home, it was said that her father had promptly and politely made her bed for her. And, you know, I think this is where we're going to stop for part one of this case about Lucy Letby. In part two... We will discuss her arrest, her being released again and arrested yet again, along with her trial and additional information, psychoanalysis, and so on. So guys, tell me what you think about this case so far. I had heard quite a bit about this um, in the news. You know, if news from outside of the U.S. starts coming into the U.S., then we know it's a pretty big deal because we have plenty of it here to saturate the market, so to speak. But I had not known so many of the ins and outs. And, and I am happy that I waited for the news of this to kind of calm down a little bit before I did my research because I could kind of look at it from a clean slate, right? But I want to know what you guys think about the case. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else. But you chose me, and I really appreciate that, guys. Come join the Serial Killing A Podcast fan page on Facebook that was created for me by a very beloved listener. Or you can DM me on Instagram, at Serial underscore Killing. But at any rate, reach out if you'd like to. And outside of that, have a great, great week, guys. And we'll see you back here for part two. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.